Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. One of the wonderful surprises about this podcast and the Racing Home Project is the number of people who've said to us that the topics and ideas we've been discussing and highlighting are now much more front and centre of their thoughts and conversations at work than they ever have been before, and that they're really trying to implement change within their small sphere of the racing bubble. If you're a man of a certain age with grown-up children, like Stephen Paget or a child-free, running-loving, 30-something woman like Susanna Gill, then the realities and pressures of a lot of the topics we've covered in the podcast just aren't necessarily crossing your mind on a daily basis. Although, as you'll hear, that's all about to change for Susanna. Susan and Stephen have kindly joined me today, and I'm really grateful to both of them for their absolute honesty on this topic. You'll hear Stephen talk openly about how he never dealt with his own children's nappies and how he does much more as a grandfather than he ever did when his own kids were little. And Susanna on how running and travel have previously been much higher priorities for her than starting a family. But mainly we're talking about change. Changes in thoughts, actions and attitudes, both their own and those of the people around them. I'll let Suze introduce herself first. My name's Susanna Gill. I am Communications and Corporate Affairs Director at the Tote, which I have done um, the last four and a half years. And before that, I worked for ARC, so, so running race courses. And before that, Betfair, and I started my career in Parliament as a researcher. So I always think I know a little bit about racing, betting and politics. And actually, the Tote's wonderful because it combines all of those three quite brilliantly so um yeah I've had I've been very focused on my career I mean I'm 38 now I sort of worked through university and got my first job in parliament I remember the week after I got my results from university and started in September 2006 and I've worked ever since and I sort of love being a grown-up and working and had never really got around to thinking about children it was always that thing that was going to happen in the future and I now find myself at nearly 36 weeks pregnant with a very different few months coming up. So um delighted to be here to talk about Racing Home and, and a, a very important perspective on women's careers and one that, yeah, I definitely haven't thought about really until now. So the timing is perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was so much, we've got so much to dig into. Um, and I, I think of you, Suze, as being one of the most not just driven, but also successful women of our age, because I'm the same age as you, um, particularly in racing, but I'm just also amongst my peer group in general. And I'm always kind of in awe of how much you've done and what you're doing and everything else. And I'm really 
interested to hear how you're feeling about motherhood, particularly when it was one of those things that was always around the corner or over the next hill. You know, how how are you feeling about it? Well, that's, that's very kind to say. I think I'm in awe of people that have, have done what they've done with their careers and already done the family thing at the same time, because I was thinking about the other day. I mean, I have spent 20 years, essentially, aside from sort of family issues and things that crop up, doing exactly what I want. I'm working as hard as I want, playing as hard as I want, running marathons around the world. And now my life is just going to be very different for a bit. But I can't really complain about that because it's something I do want to do. And I say I have I have had two decades of, of having a wonderful, wonderful time. And um, I'm there's lots of it I'm really looking forward to. Every one of my friends who's had children says it's a life enhancing event and it's incredible. Um, I guess I have the, the worry would be that just what a massive change it is to wake up on a Monday morning. And I appreciate I won't be bouncing out of bed because I'll probably have been out of bed four times already to feed, et cetera, et cetera. But to not have emails and meetings and uh, calls in the diary and, and things, you know, happening in the evenings and work events, it's just going to be a very different seven days each week. Um, and one that I have genuinely really up until right now not given that much thought to. Um, but it's going to start at Christmas or around then. So I better get ready now. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Um, I've got so many questions that are popping into my head that I'm going to write down that we can pick up in a bit. And um, Stephen, welcome as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your family situation, where you are and who you are? Thanks, Naomi. Yeah, Stephen Paget. Uh, my current role in uh, main role in racing is that I'm the chief executive of the National Horse Racing College. We train people for the industry uh, from the college, which is just uh, south of Doncaster. And I've been doing that job since 2015. And it, I refer to it as my second life because um, I left the army after 37 years of serving. But uh, yeah, so I went to the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst to train as a, an officer in 1979. I was commissioned into an infantry regiment and began a, a, a what turned out to me, in my perspective, I always say that the Queen kept asking me to go to interesting places to do interesting things with interesting people, which is why I kept taking up those offers for, <laughs> for those, that long period of time. I met my wife in 1982 and decided very quickly that, from my perspective at least, that I thought she was the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. We were married in 1984, so I was 23. Uh, my wife Amanda was 22, and 38 years later... Uh, I am sure that from her perspective, there are many ways in which she would like me to continue to improve. Um, from my perspective, it's been a fascinating, wonderful journey. But it has been a very different journey for me and for her than perhaps is usual these days for quite a lot of people. Because um, one of the decisions we talked about in detail and worked out what we thought was the best way to conduct live, live our married life and we decided that uh, we would move around where my job took us so in 1984 when we were married the first house we moved into was in west berlin which at the time was uh, uh the soviet union still occupied 
East Germany. Uh, the, the Russians, for want of a better expression, were just over the wall uh, in, the, in the middle of Berlin. We, from time to time, would be called out in the middle of the night to go and defend our positions against Soviet assault and never knew until we got there whether or not it was real. And leaving my wife behind, often it'd be sort of two, three o'clock in the morning, leaving my wife behind in, in bed in our merry quarter in, in Berlin and going out the door with all my kit on saying, well, I might see you sometime. Fortunately, it was, it was always practice. It was always drills. The Soviets never came over the wall. But we then continued to move around. And by the time we settled back here where we live now in Halifax um, in, uh, in Yorkshire, we moved into this house and it was our 23rd house in 34 years of marriage at the time. During that adventure, we lived in all sorts of parts of the world. We lived overseas. We have two children. Georgina, as the eldest, was born actually in Northern Ireland in a time when it was a very hostile environment. Uh, the first time I met my daughter, I turned up at the hospital, was allowed in through the back door by the nurses who knew I was a soldier. I was armed, carrying a, a weapon for personal protection, but in civilian clothes, and um, sat my daughter on my hip, and she still claims to this day, she's now, whatever she is, 36 or something, she still claims to this day that she's still got the dent in her bottom from when I sat her on the, uh, on the, the back end of my pistol that was tucked into my belt. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a, it's been a strange experience by many people's standards. Being, being a soldier, going around all over the place, doing the things that I did, often being away for six months at a time, going to places where, to be quite frank, people, other people were trying to do me harm. But Amanda was absolutely fabulous, bringing up the children sometimes on her own, often having to do lots of the things that in some households chaps are expected to do. But all the sort of family admin, all the guidance of things sometimes that were difficult, she had to be able and willing to do on her own. Uh, at the same time, she, wherever we were, she always found part-time jobs or some some different sorts of things because she was always determined and committed to be contributing in, in every way she could to the family in uh, in its widest sense. So we had a great time. It was a great adventure, but not always easy and somewhat unusual. And But it just was something, I think, as we look back, neither of us uh, would say we would want to do anything other than what we did. And we made what we feel are good decisions at the time. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's really interesting to talk about. Amanda has, uh, as you said, done a lot uh, bringing up the children when you were away. But it's also a sacrifice on your part as a father, if you're away for six months at a time, to to miss out on some of those opportunities of to being with your children as well. And I think that's maybe one thing that is very easy to... Um, perhaps focus on the person that's left behind and the slack that they are having to pick up, for want of a better phrase. But actually, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on on being away yourself and, and kind of not always being with your family, Stephen, despite the fact that you clearly absolutely love them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and it's something that, to be honest, I've thought about more in later years than I thought at the time, because at the time, it was just what I expected was going to be my lot. I expected that I would not be at the birth of my children. I expected that I would not take them to school, that I would probably not be able to go along and do the sort of sports day thing or, or 
it, it was just that was the way. And it was also, it's 30 to 40 years ago, but at the same time, the whole expectation in society was fathers were much more separated from those things than is the way that people think it should be or expect it to be or even in some cases want it to be themselves now in at sometimes actually not having to not really doing much in the way of dealing with baby stuff was a great relief god i was <laughs> I, I was not at all disappointed <laughs> that uh, that I was not too much involved in some of those things at times. But on the other hand, we now have two grandchildren, and when the grandchildren come and stay with us, they're four and six now, and they've been they because our uh, daughter lives some way away. They uh, they've tended to come for us a few days at a time, and I found myself. You know, um, you've got your nappy changing duties in later in life, Stephen. Yeah, nappies, bottom wiping, <laughs> bathing babies, and all the rest of it. And to be honest, I've done, and Amanda said this, I've done far more with the grandchildren than I ever did had an opportunity to do with our own children. And in a way, that's such a wonderful privilege, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things we've we've discussed a little bit on this podcast is about grandparents and the wider family as well, and how often in racing particularly it takes a village is the phrase that people use isn't it and actually that it's a wonderful privilege as grandparents to be able to spend time with your your grandchildren but I think also particularly going back to the industry that we work in so many people are reliant on parents and grandparents to be helping on a day-to-day basis as well in order to keep them working in racing I guess. Yeah because when you make the choices that you make about the types of work you're going to do, the sorts of interests that you're going to pursue, those choices come with consequences. And if you wish to uh, work in racing, there are certain realities that are unavoidable. I was already a soldier when I met my wife. We chose to get married we chose to move around where the army asked me to go, told me to go. And with that choice, with those choices, came consequences. And there was no point in saying, oh, well, we don't actually like it that way. Because it, nobody made us do it once we had made those choices. Um, and you, you sort of work out what you want out of life, and then you say, well, uh, then we will make the choices and we will uh, accept the realities that come with that, as opposed to saying, well, it shouldn't be like this because some things have to be like that. Now, that is not to say that those things which are just made difficult because people can't be bothered to think of better ways of doing it, or that people are discriminating deliberately to exclude certain people from certain roles, then those things absolutely should be railed against, fought against. But the the things which just have to be, have, you know, one has to accept and then decide how you're going to deal with it, as opposed to say, well, it just should be different, because, you know, life is, life is full of realities. Mm. Indeed, indeed. It's so interesting. And Suze, how have you gone about thinking about maternity and childcare and kind of managing a new baby? Because obviously, as we've discussed, you're someone who is 
you know, you've, <laughs> I don't think it's unfair to say you live your life at a million miles an hour. You have been and do have an extremely successful career. How have you sort of navigated thinking about the next stage of things and, and what have you decided to do on that front? Well, I think I spent the first five months ignoring it, if I'm honest. And also, I I, I get the slight heebie-jeebies about planning too much. I don't know if it's just something about that. But then I had lunch with a dear friend of mine, actually, and, and my other half, Ed Arkell. And we did we did chat about the realities of having children. And obviously, it's quite useful following most of my friends who have, have all got children, of my great friends, probably from nine years right down to about 11 weeks old at the moment. So they've, they've done it before. Majority of them have had, you know, great jobs and things they love as well. And, and actually, as, as Stephen says, that every single one of them has made compromises at some point, whether it's living in different parts of the world so their other half can progress their careers, um, living with parents in between house moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a common one. <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> yeah. dynamic. Going very part time on work that actually they would love to, you know, have a full salary and um, or having to give up work entirely for a bit simply because the cost of childcare just means that unless you're earning an absolute bomb, it makes no sense at all. Um, in my case, I think I'm going to have a go at fudging it all. Um, I've committed to four months maternity leave. And then I think after that, I will, will try and come back to work. I mean, it seems to be that four days a week works rather well. So you always have one day where you can get some admin stuff done while shops are open and things need, you know, things that need doing in life are pretty tedious normally, but you can't avoid them and just go from there. I mean, I'm hugely lucky that I work for the most lovely team of people from, from Alex Frost, our chief executive downwards. Everyone at the tote couldn't be nicer and couldn't be more supportive. Therefore, I feel that's a great starting point and also I've got a job in communications which can be pretty flexible I haven't got to be at a location I can work from home I need only to be in London a bit but I can hopefully make it all work but if I said I had a cunning plan written out and I knew exactly what was going to happen after April 2023 I'd be completely lying other than I'm talking to my friends a lot and kind of keeping all options open and and you have also just the the absolute unknowns of of what the birth is going to be like, how you're going to feel afterwards. I mean, I'm an incredibly positive person and I, I assume I'm going to bounce back and feel wonderful, but I might not. And you, you just, for someone who loves planning, the great thing is I can't actually plan everything. Um, so I'm just having to accept that, you know, yes, I, I can set out a plan for the four, first four months and, and have maternity cover, et cetera. But after that, you just got to see how it goes. Um, so if, if anyone's got any cunning tips or things that I'm missing, I'd love to know. But that's that's how I'm playing it at the moment. There is no silver bullet, is there? You know, I think that's one thing that I've sort of seen with friends and family members is that everyone parents differently. Everyone does it their own way. Everyone has their own opinions that they seem to want to foist on you, no matter whether you've asked for them or not. Definitely. And, and actually... <laughs> There's no right way of doing things, I don't think, is there? It's, you know, whether you are a family who are all together all the time or you're a family where you're doing it on your own and you're making it work. You know, we talk about this kind of making it work thing a lot. And that's a phrase that has come up time and time and time again in Racing Home. Yeah. And it is, there's, there's such a mixture of, of because of nature and nurture, it does feel like, 
80% of the questions fall to women to sort out. I mean, I don't think anyone's asking Ed how he's going to be next year and working out. Ed, but everyone goes, well, what are you going to do? And I, and I know there's a practicality of that because obviously the caring of children falls to, to women predominantly, certainly in the first year where they are very dependent on you. But it does just feel like, oh, so I have to have all the answers, do I? Right, okay. <laughs> well, I'd put my career quite on an equal with Ed, therefore... Oh, so I, I get to sort this out, right? Okay. And that's, that is just how it feels. The one thing I can safely say is that your child is definitely going to have to like racing. Because for those of you who don't know, Susanna's partner is the clerk of the course at Goodwood Racecourse. So, uh, you know, you've got, you're both steeped in racing and uh, your, your child is definitely going to be brought up uh, attending racecourses and, and loving racing, I should think, Susan. That's about the only certainty. Yes, I think that's, yeah, he's going to be, where, where do you get taken in the holidays? Racecourses. <laughs> <laughs> that's your day out we don't go to the zoo yeah the yeah no shopping for you just race courses um but yeah it, it does and i think that's why the the racing home project has been so eye-opening for everyone in racing because we all know these conversations have all gone on in the background and we know that all the, the pressure and the questions have fallen to women but there hasn't really been anywhere to go to other than chatting to friends and informally there's certainly not been somewhere central full of helpful advice and people that can support you um, in a more formal way. So I think that's been a, been a huge step forward. As I say, I say that from someone who has genuinely given this almost zero thought uh, until this year. I, I think that that point Susanna made is, is a, a really important one because it is only with the work that's been done as part of this project that a lot of the issues have been identified to those who weren't experiencing them at the time a lot of stuff just was what went on and I think this has helped to provide much greater awareness for those and I would say those of us because I would include myself in that bracket who were not having to deal with those issues not only because I'm way past the stage where we have children who need us to be providing for them but it just not something that features on my radar there are a number of members of the team that I have the privilege to to lead who have small children and I suppose one makes the assumption that oh well they've just got it sorted out but to go through what was identified as part of the project and just understand some of those things better, I found really interesting and I hope will allow me and the organisation that I lead to be more considerate, more understanding and try where things can be, back to my point earlier on about some things can't be different, but where things can be, let's try and make them better so that people can have a more fulfilling, satisfying, rewarding uh, experience and a better opportunity to contribute in the ways that we need good, capable people. I mean, Susanna, of course, is a classic example. Who wouldn't want Susanna working for you, working with you, or working for her? Because I bet she's a fantastic boss as well. Was one thing I was going to ask you both about was how the racing home conversation has changed, if at all, the conversations that you're having either with colleagues or people that you manage or other people that you know 
inside and outside the industry, I suppose. Stephen, you sort of alluded to it there that you'd never really thought about it before. And I think that's really common is that unless you're in Susanna's position, for example, where it's front and centre in more ways than one, um, you you aren't necessarily thinking about these things because they're not affecting you on a day-to-day basis. But I wonder how, in a practical sense, thinking about these topics and issues has impacted things at your workplaces, perhaps? Well, I think it means that there's certainly, as far as I'm concerned with the the National Horse Racing College, that um, just trying to um, take flexibility as a start point as opposed to a grudging, oh, well, if we have to be flexible, then we will we look more in terms of both when we are recruiting members of staff as well as when we're managing staff or are already with us, those who might, during their time that they're with us, go through the stage of, of having, a, having a family, or even later stages where they've got family who are going through um, a different stage of life, maybe going away to university and they've got to think about how they arrange stuff around that so there are i think an assumption of a desire and a willingness to be flexible and accommodating as opposed to an expectation that rigidity is just what we do and anything other than rigidity is only given grudgingly which actually is great and for your staff to be aware of that that flexibility is the the status quo i suppose is a is a great platform from which people to build post pregnancy opportunities i suppose knowing that you you are part of an organisation which puts that flexibility front and center is an absolutely a stellar place for people to begin, I think, which is great. Suze, how about you? Um, you know, obviously, you, you in tandem with this project happening, you you are pregnant, so I suppose it's a little bit different. But how do you think it's sort of changed the conversations in your workplace, if at all? Well, I, I feel like I've had a bit of an inside track to it because I was on the committee of women in racing along with, along with yourself, Naomi, for six years. So I know Tallulah Lewis, who's who was chair of Women in Racing uh, and still looking after this project, and Dina Merston very well. And the issues that that Racing Home addresses would come up with Women in Racing events, but it wasn't really until they put the pitch together to the Racing Foundation, of which I'm a trustee, to to look at this issue of of working mothers in the industry. And we're very we're very data driven at the Racing Foundation because we like to have outputs that can be measured. And the first thing we sort of asked of, of Dina and Tulula was, um, you know, well, how many people would this help? And we are so woefully ignorant of, the, of 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 our who works in our industry in racing. We didn't. They said, well, we don't know exactly how many working mothers there are, which was a perfectly valid response because we didn't have a clue. We know a lot more about our horses than we do about our people. Which is shocking, isn't it? It's so shocking that. And it comes this this issue comes up again and again, and I know it is being addressed by the BHA with the, the new Creative People Board. So hopefully we can we can move on from it. But it was very difficult from their point of view because we were asking a very basic question as, as Racing Foundation trustees. But we felt this was a really important project, and it, it's, it got funding. And I think we're very impressed with how far it's gone already. So yeah, I feel, feel like I had that inside track. But the fact that it's sort of 2022 when racing industry sort of addresses this issue sort of shows how far we are sometimes behind the curve because I think a lot of other industries whether it's 
things like construction and trying to get more women into there. Certainly, if you look at sort of civil service jobs and you look at the benefits that come with working for the civil service, a lot of other industries have been a lot more progressive faster. So really, we should be incredibly grateful that we've now got the hub of racing mm. home that we can build on if we want to attract the attract people into racing and crucially and keep them in racing. Otherwise, all the great work that Stephen and the teams do at the National Horse Racing College and and, and, and BRS and Newmarket to, to bring people in comes to absolutely nothing because people leave because it's too difficult. And I say that someone who's got a, you know, a senior executive who's going to have things about as easy as I probably could have them. And I think this is a challenge for me. What it must feel like if you you earn less, you work more challenging hours because you're working directly on yards and then you feel like there's no one there to help you. Um, and you might not have an employer who, say, embraces the um, flexibility that Stephen referred to earlier. It must feel like a very, very difficult situation. And that cannot be right. And it, and it, it's a disservice to all of us in the sport because we lose good people and we spend money and time trying to bring more people in only to keep losing them. I think it's all really worthwhile to, to talk about and, and really, really good points, Susan. Stephen, I was going to ask you actually about the attitudes of the young people that you see coming through the National Horse Racing College. You alluded earlier that times have changed quite significantly since you had children. And I just wondered when you're in discussions with um, the young people that you have coming through the college, how you find their attitudes about having families or not, and, and whether they even think about that at that stage. They seem not to. Uh, there is, I think, what we do try to do is, as part of the, what we call skills for life training, we talk, uh, and that sounds as though it's all formal, Quite some of it is much less formal. It's just about having conversations with the learners coming through the college. But among the foundation course learners, we do try and raise their awareness of the fact that there are sources of information available to them, uh, that there are things that they do need to start thinking about, whether it's the basics of budgeting and finance when you are living independently as opposed to living at home, whether it is about sexual health, whether it is about uh, drug awareness, but we try and raise their awareness of the far more um, accessible resources uh, for informing them when life presents them with either difficult choices or sometimes with a problem. Whereas perhaps in the past, if you didn't have a supportive family sort of arrangement, whether it's parents or whatever, you weren't sure really where to go. Now there are lots and lots of sources available and there are people who are able and willing to have conversations about such issues as we're talking about here. The very fact that we're having this conversation is something that just hadn't and didn't happen when uh, my wife and I were embarking on the journey when we were both, when I look back and I think how young we were, we thought we were frightfully grown up at 23, 24. Um, but um, I know... <laughs> I now realise perhaps weren't, um, didn't know as much as we thought we did. I don't feel grown up at 38, so. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to looking after another human being. 
Well, I, there, there was another thing that I, I was a Radio 4 listener when I was 14 and people always said that um, I was I was 40 from about my middle teens and only grew into my real age over a long period of time. But it, but now, I mean, all seriousness, it, 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 I think it is marvellous that there is so much more now information available and, and, and places for people to, to go and ask those questions without having to have a tricky conversation with a parent or a grandparent. Oh, well, you know, is this really the time I want to have that conversation now? And Suze, I just wanted to finish by um, touching on the sporting and physical aspects of um, sort of post-pregnancy and having a baby, because one of the things we have uh, discussed on the podcast. And if people haven't listened to the episode with Dr. Anna McKinnon from the Injured Jockeys Fund, that one is well worth a listen. Very briefly mentioned earlier about running marathons all around the world. For those people who don't know, um, Susanna holds the women's world record for running seven marathons on seven continents in seven days, which quite frankly is a feat of endurance that makes me feel like I want to sit down. I mean, I don't think it's unfair to say that you're an elite elite level marathon runner. No, I'm a, I'm a decent amateur. <laughs> who's, who's who has utilized what what talent i have to have a lot of fun running around the world okay well you're very modest but however the bottom line is you do do a lot of, you, you do do a lot of running you're a very active athletic woman and we spoke with with anna about the kind of physical effects that being pregnant can take on uh, women who ride as well and particularly thinking about yard staff and work riders obviously it depends on what happens with your pregnancy and, and delivery evidently because as you said before those things are all very uncertain but I wondered how you were sort of um, feeling about getting back into sport and returning to I guess current fitness levels which is a which is something that presents itself to a lot of women that work in the industry when they do a physical job or they ride horses or they're sporty in other ways like you are yeah no it's, it's very much something I really care about and probably along with loving my career and doing what I like the sort of impact on your body was probably one of the reasons I left it this late um, I had too many places I wanted to go and places to go and run and things to do um, so far touch wood I haven't coped too badly with pregnancy to the point where I did run the London Marathon at 28 weeks pregnant Christ did you it was a very, very funny conversation with my midwife because it started when I said, I, th I think I'd like to run the marathon because I've got a place and I just love lo running London. She said, I couldn't possibly recommend that. <laughs> and there was this long pause. But then she saw the look on my face. and We had a conversation about hydration and nutrition and taking it slowly and the fact that the London Marathon was like, is the best supported marathon. So if you're going to run a marathon at a super point in your life, it's the one to go and do. And it all went well. I bet the organisers would have had a fit if they'd have known that a 28-week pregnant woman was running the London Marathon. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't stick it on <laughs> social media before I did it, put it that way. Um, but actually, I was, I was out this morning running and I'm just gently, and it's all fine. You know, the only problem is if you eat the wrong foods or you eat too much, I find, because there's just not enough space in you. But I'm coping all right. And that's really interesting. So just to, just to touch on that, so medically... Because it, it, what I understood was that whatever your body is used to doing, you're okay to keep doing as long as you feel comfortable and well. Is that how you've treated running? Yes, I've, I've followed that advice to to the T, letter T, um, probably a little bit more than, than midwives would, would suggest. But I have been out running, and I've but I've also done a lot of the things you should also do if you you know love running. But I, I've done Pilates, I go swimming. 
Um, and I do try and rest a bit because it does, if I do a sort of hour and a half run, it does definitely take a bit more out of you than it used to. And your tummy gets tired just because the muscles are holding up so much more weight than they used to. So I, I have been, I, I, but I, I say I've eaten well. I sleep really well, which is just one of life's great things. If you can sleep well, I feel like that just sets you up. And obviously, I won't be sleeping quite so much shortly. I think <laughs> you've got to get your sleep in now. Exactly, I've got to stop trying to stop pilot. <laughs> in terms of the coming back afterwards, I again a bit sort of like work. I assume I'll make it all work. I am. I'm signed up to the to the racing home. Um, uh, system so I'll see how that works I'm really lucky I've got a great running coach who, who's got very sound and very honest advice he's like the first month you've just got to basically do nothing and just get used to your new life so I've got to, got to heed that advice in January but if you're going to have a boring month January is probably a good one to have um, and then it will just be you know taking it gently and seeing it seeing how I come back and obviously it just depends so much on how the birth goes and um whether you know you have a natural birth or cesarean etc etc so um again I'm trying not to sort of put any hard dates in diaries that you know I must go and run this by that date because I think that's a silly thing to do and I think if I'm sort of sensible hopefully I've got plenty more marathons in me well jasmine paris set the world record for the spine when she was still uh expressing breast milk didn't she she did and there's there's an amazing woman called amber who ran in America, she ran the Chicago Marathon at 39 weeks. Wow. And there's a, there's a lovely story on the BBC. So, she, yeah, she ran it, um, sort of walked, you know, walked, jogged it all the way, but finished it in six hours. Um, she ate a sandwich, had a contraction and popped off to hospital and had her baby. I mean, what an incredible woman. So she was my benchmark. <laughs> so I think anything I've done is so reasonable compared to that. Well, there you are. Um, that I'm positively sensible. Um yeah, it just shows you how incredible. I, I do have a newfound respect for women's bodies. It's not that I don't think that men aren't great. They're great as well, and they have to go through lots of changes. But, I mean, what women's bodies do to have children is just utterly phenomenal. And until, until you actually go through it, I just I had no idea quite how incredible it is. Could I add my wholehearted agreement and support for those comments? Having witnessed it from um, the uh, observer perspective, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and, um, you know, I've just, to be honest, I'm very glad I didn't have to do it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, well, I think that's probably an excellent, pl- an excellent place to finish on. Um, um, well, this has been super. Susanna, good luck for your delivery. We look forward to hearing. Are you having a boy or a girl, or do you? Is it a surprise? Uh, having a boy. No, there's going to be enough surprises. I thought I'd better find that out. <laughs> well, we look forward to meeting him when he arrives, and best of luck. Um, I know that everyone at Racing Home, yes, good luck. Uh, who already knows you and those who don't, um, you're very much part of our racing family here at Women in Racing and Racing Home. So I know um, everyone and Stephen you. and all that know you will send you your very best wishes, um, and we look forward to meeting him in the new year. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land. It would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, so see you then.